Welcome to the Balls and All podcast. Going deep into what matters most. Welcome to the Balls and All podcast. I'm your host, Will Cullen. On today's episode, as you would have guessed from that in, uh, intro there, that is the one and only Lloyd Wusu, and that was when he scored, I think it's within 60 seconds of coming on with his debut for Sheffield Wednesday against their arch rival Sheffield United. Lloyd, what's up? How are you, Will? How are you, bro? Good, mate. Uh, 60 seconds, was it? How long was after when you scored that uh, goal against United? Yeah, just under 60 seconds. Uh, uh, that was just, it was crazy. It was such a surreal day uh, because uh, not many people know I'd actually signed for Sheffield Wednesday uh, injured. I just finished playing for Brentford in the playoff final against uh, Stoke and actually had I actually done my meniscus prior to the final. But Steve Coppel said to me, Lloyd, if you want to play, look, it's totally up to you. So obviously I knew it was going to be my last game and I, so I played in the game. Uh, failing that after that, I signed finally signed for uh, Sheffield Wednesday and uh, I was obviously injured and doing my rehab for about six to eight weeks so uh, it was weird because I actually had a dream and I had a dream that I was going to make my debut against Sheffield United and score in the final uh, score in the game when I came on and like you see, like you just said there within 60 seconds of coming on I actually scored it was just so surreal so that kind of, obviously your career, you've had a few different clubs, but I've done my research and I've jumped online. With, even with just that one goal, you could have just scored that goal and nothing else or done nothing else in your career. You are you get down in kind of Wednesday folklore for coming yeah. on. Everything that you'd gone through, as you just touched on, 60 seconds, great goal, he's win the game 2-0. I'm looking at some blogs and some kind of fan posts and all it is is like Lloyd Wusu will be in our, you know, our hearts forever. It'll be a part of our history. It must be a surreal feeling looking back on that. Would have been 2004, so 14 years ago. It must be surreal looking back on it now. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's one of them ones. As a kid growing up, you always see derbies. You know, what I mean, the Man U's and Liverpool's Man, Liverpool Everton's, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I never really, never really thought about the Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United derby when I was a kid. But when I eventually signed for Wednesday. And living up there, I didn't realise how big them two teams were when it comes to rivalry against each other. The the, the actual city will becomes a it actually it nearly becomes a standstill. Uh, back in when I was playing back in the days, they actually used to play the game on a Sunday, uh, and they used to, they used to close the town because they knew because of the riots of all the fans, the Wednesday yeah. riots, and the yeah, business blaze crew. They used to close all the cities would be closed down, shut down for that game. And it was just, it was just enormous. It was just massive. Like I said, 35, 40,000 at Hillsborough. Uh, and just, just the cop when you hear them singing I.O. Sheffield Wednesday. It's just, a, oh, just, a, just goosebumps, really. Just real goosebumps. So, go, so obviously, you touched on Brentford and we touched on uh, Steve Koppel. But let's go all the way back. 1997, Slough Town. Mm. 
we touched on it a little bit offline. You, your career going through the the teams that you've played at, the accolades that you've achieved, the goal scoring records that you've got. But it started off in the non-league. Talk yeah. to me about that different path that other players might not experience, might not know about. Or let's be honest, some players, especially you know younger players today, might frown upon it a little bit, t- mm. thinking, I'm not going to go to a non-league t- team. I'm never going to get a chance to go to the top. Talk to me about that experience. Definitely. I mean, as a kid, when I was about 14, 15, I was at Crystal Palace for one year. And I just missed out on schoolboys. So I was a bit disheartened from that. But obviously, being a local boy in Slough, uh, I just joined Slough Town Football Club as a, in, the, in the youth team. And I was scoring quite a lot of goals in the youth team. Or to be fair, I was probably scoring more than a, quite a few, to be fair. And uh, Brian McDermott, who's, a, who's been a great inspiration in my career, he was a manager. And he was, he was one of the managers who always said, if he sees any youngsters, he'll always play them in the team. If they're good enough, that they're ready. And luckily for ourselves, there was quite a few of us who... Uh, who were young young guys who were just hungry to play. Uh, and luckily for myself, uh, I remember scoring a few goals in the reserves and, and the under-18s. And then one day, Brian pulled me. Uh, he pulled me on the actual day of the Saturday. I thought I knew I was in the squad, but uh, I thought I was just going to be on the bench. And he's pulled me in his room. He said, oh, Lloyd, let's come to my office, please. He said, uh, you're starting today. And as soon as he started, I was just started shaking. I was, like, I was only like, I was only like uh, eight, 18 at the time. I was like, really, Gaffer? He goes, yeah. So I'm even I'm even dropping I'm even dropping Mark West. And for the ones who don't know out there, listen to this now. Mark West was a non-league legend for Wickham Wanderers and Slough Absolutely, I'm talking a real goal-scoring poacher, uh, a senior player at the time. Uh, and the gaffer said, "Yeah, I'm, you're going to be playing up front with Gary Abbott, who again was another non-league legend at Welling and Slough Town and Aldershot." So he he said, you, "He goes, just go out there and do what you got to do." And luckily for myself, I ended up scoring four goals on my debut. It was unbelievable. And then he, took, he actually took off Abbo scored in the game. And then he took off Abbo, brought on Wesley, and Wesley scored. We won 6-1 against Telford. Uh, so it was just dreams come true. And then obviously the next day in all the national papers, uh, in, in every paper, the, the, the Guardian, the News of the World, they were saying, oh, new, new, new striker on the scene to look one to watch. And it was just unreal. And I just couldn't believe it. It, just, it was just like brilliant just to score four goals as an eight-year-old in the, in the conference as well. And when you say about non-league, the conference back there, Will, it was a, it was a tough league. It was tough. There were some real good players, especially young players. There was myself coming through, Kevin Betsy at Woking, who ended up going to uh, Fulham. Jason Roberts, as many would probably know, yeah. great players at Hazen Yedin, ended up going to Wolverhampton Wanderers. Barry Hells, uh, he was at Stevenage. He ended up getting a move to Bristol Rovers. And uh, Lee Hughes, he was at Kidderminster, ended up going to West Brom. So there was about four, four or five of us youngsters who were like we were like eighteen to eighteen to twenty in non-league, just grafting, grafting, and luckily we all got we all got opportunities to become professional. And like like you touched on it about young kids nowadays will think, oh, like oh, the conference, what's that all about? But I tell you, that's where you learn your graft, mate. You learn your real real trade there, mate. It's because it's you've got to be hungry. You've got to really want to succeed because, like I said, for me it was about knowing what I wanted to do was to be a pro. But what did it take to be a pro? It was about the extra hard work being in there, being mental strong. And uh, luckily for myself, two years later, I managed to get a, a move to Brentford. So do you think being in that environment of, I guess, I guess probably on the outside looking into the pro world, it gave you that extra bit of hunger to want to become a professional. Whereas if you think of young kids coming straight into a pro environment now, getting everything weighted on them, hand and foot, everything's there for them. Do you think that's a difference? Like that lack of, 
I think maybe your environment that you were playing in and you wanted to get higher and higher gave you that hunger. Do you think that's there now? Would it, is that, is that, would that be a correct assumption? Definitely. Back, like I said, in my day, it was like that. Because like I said, you're in non-league. And if you, as, as a kid, like any kid wants to be, every kid wants to become a professional footballer. But it, it's what it takes. And like I said, being in that environment there, it was about just wanting to work extra, extra harder. And for myself, I used to, a lot again, a lot, a lot of people don't even know this. I, every, every Sunday, Danny, Danny Bailey, he was a fellow player as well, an ex-pro as well. He used to take me every Sunday after train, after the games, and I'd go up to Walthamstow in North London and, uh, and train with him. We used to go and do hill running, finishing and swimming. I used to train three hours, three hours a, uh, a Sunday after, after a game on, on a Saturday. And like I said, it just, it just gave me hunger because I was just hungry to do to, to Look at the top levels. All these kids, they get everything, they get everything playing on a plate to them. And so for that, they, they, they're not hungry enough. They just think, yeah, I've already made it. But then the ones who, the ones who that happens, they don't, they don't end up even making it because they haven't got that real desire and hunger. And obviously, as as your career went on, you've been in coaching, and you're both, you've, you know, you've done a lot of coaching here in Australia. Is is this is that not just specifically to Australian youth, youth, but around the world? Is it something that you see growing and growing? As you would have heard from one of our previous podcasts, we chatted to a good friend of yours on a similar topic, a great mate of yours, mm. uh, Gav Ray, and we talked about that. Uh, what's missing in the youth and he kind of reckons that it's just the times are changing and coaches kind of have to adapt to players now whereas back in the day when you played and when Gav played obviously coaches they were the boss that was it if they gave you a shout if they gave you a roar you had to deal with it how do you see that change and how do you see that relationship between coaches and young players nowadays changing yeah I mean like you say back in my days you know what I mean if you when when when, when you did something wrong or something like you would, you would know, you would know about it from the gaffer. But nowadays, you got to be so, you got to be so politically correct when you're working with these youngsters because as soon as you say boo, you know what I mean, they'll they'll just either hide or or start crying. So it's it's quite a different complex, quite a different scenario how how it is over. I mean, the last I would say 10, 15 years. You know, now again, it's just about uh, making sure you you sort of you sort of man man, man management man management in in the right way uh, and just be more politically correct. And on coaches, speaking of managers, obviously you've had some like great managers, and you know Steve Koppel to me. Yeah. Looking at yeah, you know, look at all the teams that you've played for. Steve Koppel to me, Man United legend, obviously done an amazing job at Reading. However, you know, I I totally forgot that Brian McDermott was one of your gaffers. Brian McDermott also did an amazing job at Reading, and known around football as one of the nicest guys in football. Yeah. Um, and obviously Martin Allen uh, seems to me like quite a character talk yeah. to me about talk to me about the different managers uh, the good things the bad things and kind of what stands out from your whole career from those managers yeah like I said the, the names you mentioned that the names you mentioned there I would probably say they've been massive influences on my career uh, from totally different scenario totally different mannerisms and management styles and coaching styles where for me I mean Steve Copper was my best ever coach I've ever had uh, in regards was, to the- was he good from it a man management perspective was he good tactically because you you hear that argument now all the time I remember reading Joey Barton tweet I think it was about Ferguson saying Ferguson can't even put out cones but yet there he is winning a trophy after the trophy obviously his man management skills and he got the right people in to help him tactically what was Koppel's assets? Koppel he had everything to be fair he had 
he had everything with regards to man management. He, he, he would tell you straight away, black and white, he wouldn't beat around the bush. If you weren't playing, he would pull you and talk to you, tell you why, which I found was, which I found was brilliant as a player. You want, that, you want to know the truth from a gaffer. And then tactically, he was back in the days, like this was back in, I mean, he came across 2001 at Brentford. So like we, we never used to know about video editing and, and watching other teams. Like every Friday, he would he would obviously prior in the week he would have get, he would get the videos of the other teams that we were playing against, go home, break them down, and then we'd sit down on Friday before training and watch the other team's strengths and weaknesses on, on back in the, the old VHS tape uh, back then. So it was you never I never never heard about that back in them kind of days. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was like so it was so we had so much insight into other teams we were going to play against, all because of the way he. He man managed and, and, and done everything, you know. And then I'm when I what, what about what about Martin Allen? <laughs> a totally, totally, totally different kettle of fish. He was he was a, a great, like I said, a great guy, but he had just a different mannerisms. I would, I mean, when I say great coach, probably he was his methods were different in coaching. Mm. He knew his message across. Uh, he was more of an aggressive manager coach. Very in your face. If you, I mean, he would let you know if you weren't doing, if you weren't putting your weight, he would, he would be in your face. Uh, but just some of the stuff he used to do. But when I, when I look back at my career now, I think some of the funny stuff he done. It was so surreal. What, what actually made us get results? Like for example, we used to, we, used to, we were. I remember one game we traveled. We were traveling away, and obviously on a Friday we'd normally travel and then train up, up at wherever the training ground up north. But this time it was actually raining, uh, so we couldn't, we couldn't train outside. So in the evening, we're having our, we're having our uh, dinner in a private room. So all the players would be in a private room and the gaffer and the assistants and the physios would be in another room. Uh, and then we all eat and the next thing gaffer walks in because he never used to, when we were having dinner, he never used to walk in at all. He just used to let us be. And he walks in, he goes, our oh, boys, he goes, uh, we're going we're to practice free kicks and the set pieces. And we were like thinking, hold on, you told us we're not doing it because it's, it was raining. He goes, don't worry about that. But it was so weird because where we were sitting, in the our dinner, there was this arcove, yeah, like it actually looked like a goal. So he said, uh, "Go start on eleven, stand up." So myself, uh, it was myself, Marcus Gale, Darren Prattley, Sam Soji, Turner, Kevin Connor, a few other players. He goes, he goes, Nelson getting goal, and Nelson goes, "What, what goal?" He goes, "That arcove there, go and stand in it." So Nelson, Nelson standing in it. He goes, he goes, Prattley, go stand over there, just like as if you were going to take a corner. He says, "We're going to walk through, we're just going to walk through the motions of the set pieces." So we're thinking, okay, that's not that's not a problem. So no. There was bread. There was a bread roll on the table because obviously we were having our dinner. So he's chucked this bread roll. He's chucked this bread roll to Prattley. He said, "Prattley, that's the football. I want you to toss it in, and he went, I want Lloyd, Soji, Turner, and Gailey to attack the ball. So we had to attack the bread roll. <laughs> so, you, so, you've got, <laughs> so you've got Prattley actually tosses this bread roll into the box, so-called mixer, and then all us boys just attacking the ball, trying to score a goal. But it was just, it was just, just the kind of quality settings that he did for us, and it was just. It was priceless, mate. But he was—he was a character, a real character. And that, Brian McDermott is it again? I've just read about him, and obviously everyone just says he seems like one of the nicest guys in football. Obviously, would have been your experience at Slough. Would that be? Would he be up there with one of the nicest managers you've? Yeah, but again, like I said, I was—I was a kid at Slough Town. Well, to be fair, funny, funny to say that before I was even well, when I was still a kid, just like there before. I was actually work coaching for him, doing my. Uh, he was a football community officer for Slough Town Football Club, and I've done my work experience there first, and then I ended up I ended up leaving college and then coming to work with him and a guy called Billy Fury, 
doing the football community program, and then that's when I started playing for Slough. And so Brian always just took me under his wing, obviously, because he was a local boy. He was a local Slough boy as well. So uh, he was just a kind of game, again manager, man management, brilliant. He, he would tell you what it, tell you how it was. You know, what I mean, he, he would improve me. But the great thing about him, he's always used to do. He he always went that extra mile for me. And even even other younger players, to be fair, I remember he used to always get us in and do extra extra training for us. It was. I mean, you don't get you don't get much. You don't get many managers who will go that extra mile for a player to to take him under their wing and and, and really improve him. And he 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 done that in abundance. So. Obviously, like if anybody, anybody listening, just go into Lloydabusu. You have a look at it. It's just as a Wikipedia page. It's is littered with, you know, stuff in his career and you know teams and international stuff and everything that, you know, any footballer, any other good pro would have. But one thing that I find amazing is, the Ghana, you had you know a rare appearance for Ghana, but then you got that bad injury against. Mm. Uh, Stuttgart. How did you how did you deal with injuries throughout your career? I know obviously you had, I think it was a about a pneumonia when you were at Adelaide as well, and I know you've had previous injuries. Yeah. We talked offline. How first of all talk me through the Ghana experience and getting that injury, and then yeah. talk to me, talk to me about dealing with injuries mentally. Definitely. Yeah, I mean obviously playing for your playing for your motherland is is any boy's dream. You want to play for the, your your country. Obviously, obviously whether your country you're born or if you if that doesn't happen, obviously, next best thing, obviously, your, your, your parents' country. So, luckily for myself, I got the opportunity to uh, play for Ghana. I actually got first uh, called up when I was at Reading. And even then, I thought it was a joke when I got the secretary said, I lawyer the Ghana FA want you to come and play a friendly game. I thought that was a joke. But uh, after my second season, uh, I think it was 2006, uh, I was having a great, great season for Brentford, to be fair. We were, we were flying in the table. I was just, 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 just really, at, probably at a real pinnacle of my career. I was just like scoring, playing really well, consistent, just being consistent. Uh, and then luckily, it was gone. It was due to be Ghana's first World Cup ever. So uh, I, I got a call up late, late as well. Got a late call up. I think it was May, during March, April, May. I think it was May time, uh, April or May time. It was uh, just before the season was about to finish. Uh, and then we, we played out in FC Stuttgart. But prior to when I look back at when I look back at you know I mean it's all in hindsight now. I mean I must admit when I went there I was I had a I had a slightly tight groin. My right groin was a bit tight. But obviously going to, you know the World Cups come in if you perform well you could you could be in a, you could have got an opportunity of playing. So I didn't really say I didn't really say nothing to the physio you know what I mean as if to say I had a bad groin. So uh, the the day we played in Stuttgart it was really wet, but the pitch we were on it was really hard. And uh, had had studs on. And I remember Michael Essium played a ball. He played a ball in between uh, their left back, their right back, and their and their left side of centre half, their right side of centre half, and their right back. And, he's, and I've tried, and me just being so eager trying to keep the ball in, I've just raised and I should. I mean, when I look back, I should have let it just go. But I've tried to keep the ball in, and when I've tried to keep it in, I've slid off the turf because my studs had sort of skid off the turf. And all of a sudden, I just felt a mass. I just felt a rip. I just, I literally, a buckle. I buckled and felt this horrible rip. And I was just like, F. It's like, oh, no, that's me done. That's me done. Uh, and then, obviously, came off the came off straight away. And then, uh, obviously, I was just iced it, iced it, iced it, thinking hopefully it'll be all right, sort of. But then when we got back to England, went to go and get a diagnosis. Uh, and it said, obviously, look like you've got a ruptured groin. But it was one of them ones where, will I be fit enough to play in the World Cup? If I'm, if I can get it back, and the, the surgeon, the first surgeon I went to see, goes, yeah, you should, he goes, ideally you should, with this injury, you should be back hopefully just before the World Cup. 
but me being me being me, I was just like, oh, I've got to try and do it. But what happened was the injury. I actually tore I actually tore it off the bone one point one point one point eight millimeters off the bone. So what they normally say if it was if it was two millimeters, they say straight operation. But because it was one point eight, this surgeon said, oh no, just rest it and it'll it'll heal. Just do your rehab. But I I wouldn't you know, I would have loved I sh- when I look back, wish I had the operation to then I would have been back. And it just it just didn't heal real. It just it just never healed for ages and ages. And I went and then the following season I went back to see another surgeon, Mr. Gilmore, who, who's a specialist in, in that real area. And he goes, um, he goes, he goes, Lloyd, you should have had the operation straight away, even though it was it was it was at that it was at that point where yeah, you, you could have didn't obviously you didn't have to, but you should have really if you wanted to be back. So that injury made me be out in the end for eleven months. Eleven months he popped out. So that was that was that was mentally tough uh, because, like I said, you gone to a World Cup. Well, luckily, well, let me go back. I actually, didn't man, manage to go to the World Cup in the end. Ghana sent me sent me out there in Germany to watch a couple of games. But just being out there and watching the boys, thinking, you know what, you could have been out there. Because even the fans, I remember being in the stand and some of the Ghanaian fans said, "Hey, Wusu, Wusu, you should be, you could be there, you should be there." And I was just like gutted. But like I said, I just try to keep mentally strong. Uh, it was tough because, like I say, you go into pre-season and training, all the boys are out in the field and you're just in the in the gym doing your rehab. Uh, I just I just kept mentally strong. Like I said, I, I, I had some great mates around me, uh, mum and dad, just kept me focused. But then for me, it was a matter of I might be injured now, but I've still got a long I've still got a long way ahead in, in, in football to do. I've still got loads to achieve. So yeah, I just, I just done my rehab, kept my head down, worked harder, worked probably even harder. To get back, and then luckily the following season, yeah, I did get back. So we, again, on the previous podcast, we would have talked to Gav again similar topics about that mental side of football and how you know probably we don't hear an awful lot about it. There's obviously we hear incidents of now you would see in other sports like the NBA players coming out talking about anxiety and depression and mm. dealing with different situations, and we forget that. There's so many footballers at so many levels across the world that it's only natural that somebody is going to deal with some type of uh, mental issues or mental health. During your career, did you ever see or did you ever feel or recognise that it was something that was outwardly talked about or do players keep it to themselves or was it towards the end of your career that you see it kind of becoming more and more to the forefront? Yeah, to be fair, Will, back in my, it was, whether players, obviously I'm gathering, after hearing stories over the many years now, players had it, but like I said, back in my day, no one, I could not even, none of my teammates I could even think of now in the past ever, ever heard of, ever heard about depression or anxiety, uh, how it has come out to the forefront now. So back in them days, like I said, whether players were hiding it, but uh, it was it was it was never really known. But it's weird. Funny you say about that because I look back at my career because uh, a lot of people don't know. Obviously, when I went to Sheffield Wednesday, there was a time I started I started puking up on the pitch. I started puking up all the time, and ever since yeah, then, like, like Willie Beeman. Yeah, just like that. But ever since then, it's been a it's been a ritual. But when I look back at it now, I think it came down to the anxiety because I had signed. Yeah, yeah good point. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was playing at Brentford for all my career for four years in front of only five, six, seven thousand a week. And then all of a sudden, I've gone to Sheffield Wednesday in a derby, obviously in front of 40,000, playing in front of, on average, 20,000 a week. So that that difference for me, in the end, when I look back, it was actually anxiety, you know? Because I'm thinking, wow, I'm here in a small in a small pond 
in in uh, Brentford, but I've come to this massive pond. And I didn't have to deal with it. And I, I used to be on the pitch, like, sort of hyperventilating. And all of a sudden, I was just always used to be sick. Just always used to be sick. But no one ever knew what it was. I went to see doctors. They thought tonsillitis. I had my tonsils taken out. I went to, I went to ENT guys to check my ears, my nose. Nothing. They didn't, couldn't diagnose it. So when I, look, when, I really, when I really, really look, if I look deep into it, I honestly think, I honestly think it was anxiety. Honestly, yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah. Um, so when you talked about those injuries and we touched on that mental health aspect, it must be hard when you are on you know, the treadmill or you're on the bike and you're looking out and you're seeing the boys trying. But as you said, you kind of your aspect and your kind of outlook was, I've got, while I'm injured now, there's going to be days when I'm not injured and I still want to achieve a lot. How how hard is it? But that you'd see other players or other teammates. Do you do like them not dealing with it? Is it they need an arm around the shoulder? Their injuries being so bad is. I just find that sometimes young players these days don't realise that how hard injuries can have, like the impact they can have on their players' careers. It's uncontrollable. You can't control it. Anything can happen. But the mental side to get you through to the other end of it, and what you're saying is exactly right, knowing that there will come a day where you'll be able to get back on the field again. And I remember watching an ITV documentary, and you were on it, and you talked about, and you touched on it a few minutes ago, how your mom and dad and gave you that kind of mentality to um, kind of persist and go through it. My question, coming to the end of it now, is do you feel there's a gap or an area in football coaching or in sports coaching, to touch on helping players deal with setbacks like this. Definitely, I think I think that's a great, great point, Will. Uh, in in when you do these courses and and all these badges, that aspect ne- never spoke about, never spoke about. Because like you say, especially playing in the pro game, if they're getting injured, how do they deal with, an, especially a long term injury, if it's something serious, how do they deal with who who's helping them with that process of yes, you're getting a process of getting your 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 injury healed. But who's really helping them deep, deep inside that feeling that that young kid thinking, and he's probably thinking, I'm never going to ever get back into a team, or I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be good enough, I'm not going to be fit enough. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no remedy or no one helping. Guys, to, to to go through that. So I think I think that's that, that's a great call to maybe to, again for something to really bring up in the forefront of, of the footballing world for people to be out there to really help youngsters and even just even any players with, with, with injuries, you know? Well, if you, if you think about it, and I know obviously in the latter stages of your career, especially here in Australia, you've had a, a huge role in coaching and dealing with players and doing your badges. But as we both know, the badges are great. And to me, a badge is like a driver's license. Just because you have one doesn't mean you're good. You know, just yeah, yeah. It's it's about how you apply it, your knowledge, all that type of stuff. But there must be some gap there where we can help players deal with injuries, deal with the mental side of football, uh, especially young kids coming up now. Totally different to where when you grew up and when I grew up. Mm. How do we change the? How do we change coaching's kind of perspective? To it's not just all about four three three, or it's not just about tactics. There's actually a bigger part to play in. Uh, coaching because we're dealing with humans at the end of the day and it comes for me it comes down to man management man management we, I don't see an awful lot on how to get better at man management no there's, there's, there's not enough at all there's not enough on how how, the, how does a coach put his arm around a player to, to, to guide him to, to help him 
you know. Is it so- natural? Is it something that you can teach? You think it's natural? Like if you took, if you touch back on again, the, the bread roll incident, or if you touch on like Steve Koppel and stuff. Obviously, these guys, like especially Steve, would have had it in abundance, and mm. maybe some coaches that you've played for haven't. Is it coachable, or is it just you either have it or you don't? To be fair, when you when you look at it that when you look at it that way, well, you probably it's probably just within within that individual. You know, yeah. it's not something you can just get on a piece of paper or on a board and say this is how if a player. I think it's it's how a man a man how his actual mannerisms himself is to 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 get that message across to to, to players. Because like I said, I've had managers who are like who are like really shy, who who don't really express themselves. So so a guy so a coach or a manager who can't express himself really and get his message out. How's he going to help a player who's down and out and who's down and out? You know what I mean? It's not. It's not. It's not going to work. Yeah. It. Yeah. It, it's. It's. It is one of those kind of. I don't know. Do you. Do you work on it or do you kind of just say, "Hey, look, you either have it or you don't have it." But I do think that it's an aspect, and I know you agree that coaching can start focusing a little bit more on how do we help players mentally, and again, how do we prepare them for tough times that's going to come up in their career, whether it's. You know, playing at junior level, whether it's kids football, like nice and young, getting them to understand the ups and downs, or whether it's in an NPL level or a semi-pro level in the UK, how do we get players to understand the the pitfalls of what's ahead of them? Um, I want to talk to you about racism in football. Mm. The reason why I want to talk to you about it is there's a guy I know, uh, you know him, CeeLo, Michael Seeley. Uh, yeah. He's been at Osset Dunbar. His dad is Tony Seeley, and Tony Seeley is the second... A black player ever to play for Southampton, and I remember reading an article he he uh, he was in in the UK a few years back. He lives in Hong Kong now, and he talked about at the time racism in, back in the seventies and eighties in England was massive in in, in terraces and to uh, to the black players. And while John Barnes was obviously in the news about what happened to him, Tony was playing in lower league football. And he said that the media never really commented on what was happening then in the lower league and the racism and the the stuff that they were getting from the fans was 10 times worse than what was happening in the old first division. Can you talk me through your experience, if there was a lot of it or lack of it, of racism throughout your career? Uh, I mean, look, from, in my time, there was... Obviously, growing up, you, you you used to hear about the stuff that, the, like you say, Tony. I mean, I know Tony quite well as well. Uh, and like you say, the Johnny Barnes and Tommy so many stories back in their era, the real, real, real pitfalls then. But when I was when in my time, I didn't really see or hear much. I, I must admit, I did have a, I did have a little incident, a couple of little incidents in my career, where once was we were playing. I can't remember. I don't know if it was Notts County or someone. And I remember we we, we got a corner, and uh, their goalkeeper was making he was making monkey chants to me. Uh, and I was just, I, you know, I mean, I, as a youngster, I just thought, I just ignored it, you know, I just thought, you know, what an idiot. Anyway, and the, for me, the best way to answer him was to to put the ball in the back of the net. And that's what I did. I actually scored in that game and, and that shut him up. And then there was another incident, I believe, at Sheffield Wednesday. But, and fair play to the fans. I never actually, I never actually physically or mentally heard it. Apparently, there was a couple of fans, actual own Sheffield Wednesday fans as well in the stand. Uh, when I was warming up, they were apparently making some racist gestures to me, etc., uh, and then some of the other fans around him actually reported this guy. And fair play to Sheffield Wednesday, they banned the guy for life. You know. Well, yeah. And again, we've we've. I'd like to think, and I'm sure you'd agree that uh, 
you know, racism in football is, while it's still prevalent in some areas in some countries around the world, it's come on leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds. And especially here, we're here in Australia, obviously watching the A-League. It's great to see the diverse culture, the diverse backgrounds uh, and the different religions playing sports Not in Australia. It's great. But it, looking back on it now, as you said, you didn't really see much. You didn't really hear much. What about any other players that you would have played with, whether you're black or different race? Was has it changed much since when you first started back in '97, '98? To as you were finishing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like I said, uh, from from when I was did start when I was a kid, and then obviously, you know, I mean, sometimes you, especially when you went to different parts of the country, especially if you went up up north, though, you did you'd, you'd hear little little murmurs of little whispers here and there. But like I said, later on, later on, they brought out they brought out kick out racism. You know, I mean, the FA brought that out, and that was a real good pilot, and it did really, it did really educate the the, the non nuisance people, I call them. You know, what I mean, it really educated these people about about football and, and racism. And the great, I mean, the thing was, the thing what I noticed also what made it change because because a lot of these teams they have so many black players in their teams anyway. So if these players, if these so-called fans want to be racist towards their own players, teams, they just they, they would just reject reject. The, the, the opportunity to play and then that happens and then what happens then they, you're not going to have no teams then you're going to have no fans isn't it? so for me it's it's been a real good thing kick out racism you know what I mean that, that, that really works but like I said it's, it's, it's got so much better now it's very very rare do you do you hear anything that's that's happening on, on the, in the terraces uh, towards towards fellow black players or F, F, different ethnicity of player Talk to me about terraces. It's it just literally as you just said that word. It kind of touched on me. If we think of back in the day, all you know the terraces, the fans, the firms. What was that like to play in front of or be part of? Especially like Brentford, Wednesday, yeah. uh, Reading, all those. I'm sure all those teams would have had their own firms, would have had their own kind of uh, you know ultras if you want to call them. Or yeah, what and that's obviously well, I, I'm assuming that's totally gone now or nearly gone out of, you know, football, especially in England. What was yeah. it like playing in front of them, be a part of a club? What? Tell me about it. Yeah, it was, it, it was sometimes it was daunting. I remember Millwall. I mean, yeah, like you probably know, the den. It's, yeah, Jesus. But it was, it was even worse. I felt more, more, we played, we actually played them at home one game in the, in the league. And they, their fans actually ripped out our seats and they, they were hostile. They were dangerous, mate. I mean, they were they were a proper firm Millwall and like I said that was scary. But like you said, you you see Sheffield when when I moved to Sheffield, uh, you had obviously the, you had the owls the, the 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 business or business players crew were the Sheffield United fans and the Wednesdayites were the were the Sheffield Wednesday fans. But the the business players crew the BBC, they were a naughty firm. They were a naughty firm. They'll be north side of the of the of the city, and uh, uh, so south side of the city and uh, they were this they were this wrong ones, proper wrong ones. So it, it, it was daunting and obviously being a player as well, if you, and especially a lot of us would be that part of the city as well because that's where it was more of the sort of plusher sort of area where, where we go for lunches and anything. Uh, but again, luckily for ourselves because I, I had great friends in the Sheffield United as well like Stephen Cabba and everyone. So when the business players would see me, they wouldn't really, they wouldn't really say nothing to me. But some of, a couple of my players, Alan Quinn, Alan Quinn, uh, Great pay. I think uh, paid for Sheffield Wednesday and Ipswich and Northern Ireland, uh, or Republic of Ireland, so shall I say. He uh, he actually got chased one evening. 
got out of a taxi, got out of a taxi with his missus and some others. Uh, and he, he and they they chased him all the way down. They chased him all the way through the city, and then he luckily got away. But they ended up they actually beat up. They they got him or they thought they had got him, and they beat up and they beat they beat up some guy. So the next day I remember the police coming to training to find out if Alan if Alan was if Alan Quinn was okay because they heard that he he got chased down by the business base crew. So like I said, this that, it, it it can be hostile, man. There's some some naughty naughty boys out there. Um, Brentford Hall of Fame, 2016. That's obviously uh, in uh, 2016. You were inducted. Yep, correct. Brentford obviously have gone. They're sitting in uh, championship now, but you had two stints at Brentford from 1998 to 2002, and then 2004 to 2007, yeah. and altogether scoring about 78 or nearly 78 to 80 goals for the club. Yeah. Is that the one club that holds a special place in your heart? Yeah, it always will because at the end of the day, they're the ones who gave me the opportunity from non-league to to become professional. And like I said, I mean, like I, said, I had four four magical years there. My first, my first spell, and even my second spell was good. Obviously, prior to the injury, uh, and then like I said, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame, I, I was so gobsmacked and and just couldn't believe it. So humbled uh, when they messaged me to say, "Oh, they actually heard. They actually heard I was actually coming back to the UK." And that January of 2016, and they said, "Oh, because you're going to be coming back, Lloyd, uh, you've been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, we want to we want to do it on the pitch and in front of the fans and everything." And uh, it was just it was just brilliant. And then they'd done a Wall of Fame as well, where they've got a massive picture of, of all certain of all the guys who've been inducted. In, uh, so it was just yeah, it's just just a special place, man. Special place, Brentford. Talk to me about life after becoming a professional. Because this is something that I talked to Gav with and I've read about it a couple of times. And one of the stories that stands out in my mind is David James. David James, I remember reading a piece in The Guardian, talked about how when he was 13 or 14, going into a pro environment, and from 14 to whatever year Jamal finished, 37, 38, mm. being told what to do, where to go, having a routine, basically being waited on hand and foot. Then yeah. all of a sudden when your career's finished, it's over. Yeah. Some players deal with that better than others. And again, I think that touches back onto that mental side. Yeah. What did you find hard about not being a pro anymore? And how did you deal with it? Again, luckily for myself, I, I've all, since even being a pro, since finishing being a pro, I was still in that environment, Will. I was still surrounded by football. So as much as you, you've been in it for 15, 20 years, and obviously that's all, you, that's all you've ever known, luckily for myself, I, I sort of rolled straight into it. But I guess that was from me from day one. From when I was younger, I always said that's what I wanted to be anyway. I wanted to be I wanted to be a coach. So I'm not, so for me, if you have if you have dreams and beliefs, you've got to, you've got to keep following them dreams and beliefs to achieve what you want to do. So luckily for myself, from the age of 15, 16, I always used to say, after football, if I ever do become a pro, I want to coach anyway to give back for what I've learned. And again, since retiring at 34, wherever I was then, I've, it's just been straight coaching. So I'm, I've always been in, I've always been around, around the football and, and and helping out the next generation. So for me, it's been it's been an easy transition. But like you said, I know many many other players who have been hand, have been weighted hand and foot on silver spoon in their mouth all these years, and then they've 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 not even won again, even whether it's coaching badges or any other slight other educations. And then when they finish, it's like boom. What do I do? I don't even know. And, and as you said, you had a plan, you had an idea, you wanted to do coaching, and obviously you do that now. And 
you wanted to do coaching, do you think a lot of players finish and don't think about what they want to do until it's over? Yeah, because they think because they, they think they've had it, they've got it so good. Uh, they, like I said, they get everything they get everything done for them, not realizing that. Trust me, it it, it it can just one it can just go like that. Obviously, one if you got injured for a like a long term injury or career and injury, or at the end of the day when you finish your actual career with nothing at the end of it. So a lot of players have have gone through that. Again, a lot of players have gone through that to, to gambling, and then obviously like we talked about earlier about the depression, the anxiety. Uh, so it's it, it is it is it is tough. It is tough. Talk to me about your experience abroad. Obviously, you've had uh, a stint at Adelaide, and then I know you there was a, a time where you were potentially going to. It was a Papos, Papos. Is that how you pronounce it? Papos. Yeah, Papos in Cyprus. Papos in Cyprus. What was it like? especially, you know, obviously relevant here and for going to Adelaide, what was it like making that move from playing football in the UK all your life to packing up and coming to a place like Australia and kind of starting again? Yeah, it, it was it was crazy, really, because I remember I was at Brighton. I was killing it at Brighton. I just went on loan for them for two months. I had 15 games and they were, we were fighting relegation and I scored a lot of goals to, to save us. And I remember I was, being in, I was in the change room and my phone just at the end of the session, my phone's rang and there was some agent on the phone saying, "Oh, this is Richie Hinton from Australia, uh, a club in Australia, with King And as soon as he said Australia, I was like, oh, no. I was like, "No, what are doing it straight? What's there to do in Australia football wise?" And uh, the physio, the physio overheard me talking, Malcolm, and he said, "Oh, what's that lawyer about Australia?" I said, "Oh, some agents talking to me about some team Adelaide United are keen to sign me." He goes, "Oh, he goes, remember Paul Reed? He, he's he's out there. He says fantastic." I said, "Oh yeah, is it?" So I said, I'll give you his number and called him. So I called Reedy that evening. And I said, I oh, really, some guys, some agents called me and said, your team's quite keen. I said, What's it like? And he just gave me, he just said, look, it's really cool out here. So I went back. I remember I spoke to the missus at the time. And I said to her, oh, the team in Australia is quite keen. What do you think? And I mean, at the time, her dad her dad was lived in Perth and she hadn't seen her dad for many a year. So I said, you know what? Let's, let, I said, if that's the case, let's go and have a, let me go and have a look. They wanted to pay for me to come out and have a look. And, uh, you yeah, know, I, I decided. See how it goes. So, what came out here, and to be fair, I think they really put the red carpet out for me, Will, because when I got there, they picked me up in a lovely car. They took me to an area called Glenel, which is like on the, uh, like sort of the, the seafront, where where all the lovely fish restaurants are. And they took me to the best fish restaurant in Adelaide, and they really wine and dine me, put me up in the best hotel, and then I was to be fair, I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, wow, this is this is actually quite nice, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, met up with then I, then I met with some of the boys. All the, I met with the whole squad uh, just to see what they were like. Had a, I even had a, I even had a little run around with them, and I was like, you know what, this is quite tasty uh, because I was actually looking for a two year deal uh, after after my time at Brighton. Uh, Brighton offered me a one year deal, but I said to them I wanted a two year deal even on less money because I believe I deserved that after what I did. But they, they only the gaffer only offered me a one year deal, so I rejected that and Adelaide offered me a two year deal on not bad money. So I said, you know what, thirty. Well, 34, I think it was 32 or 34. I said, you know what, let's go and give it a go, give it a go, and and came came here and yeah, I mean, again, football wise, didn't go the best, didn't go to plan because, like you said earlier about my swine flu and pneumonia, I got struck down with, put me on the back burner. But when I look back at it now, I don't, I don't regret nothing at all. It's been it's been brilliant. It's I'm actually living a, I'm living in a great country. Uh, kids are loving it, and it's it's just a great lifestyle. Um, best goal you ever scored. Oh wow, jeez! I put all. Oh, I, mean, I guess it's got to be one of the ones. I mean, I actually won gold in a month one year, 
2001-2002 season for Brentford uh, at Blackpool away. He actually won goal of the month, which was a quite a nice goal. Uh, but I would probably say best best goal for meaning would probably be scoring a winning goal to win the championship back in 1999 against yeah. Cambridge when I think when I, I lobbed the was keeper. That, was that in Cambridge's ground? At Cambridge's ground, yes. We both yeah. had to... Uh, we both we were both we were both already promoted, but whichever team or we only needed a draw to be fair, they needed to win. So whoever won the game won the league essentially. Uh, so we we went on their home ground and yeah, I scored a, we won one nil. It was a cagey affair second half. Scored a goal and it, yeah, that's probably one of my best goals as well. But like I said, the one against Blackpool when I when I flicked it up and turned on the half turned and volleyed it in the top bin. I thought that was a that was a very nice goal. Best player you played with. Uh, best player I played with, it's, it's not going to everyone. It'll be a surprise to, to see when I say this player, uh, a player called Gavin Mann. Uh Obviously, I wouldn't say he's the best. I mean, best player I played with. Only reason I mean, I played with Michael SC and them. Don't get me wrong, they're, they're just top top draw. Don't get me wrong, but with Gavin, when he he came from uh, non-league as well from uh, Hereford, Brentford, and he just had everything about him. He just had everything. He was tenacious. He had a touch. He had vision. He had the strike. He just had a whole round package, and he was a he was a good good man, a good leader, and just a, a real good player, you know. So he was, yeah, he's definitely. I always I always say he's the, one of the best players I've ever played with, you know. Did Gav? Did he ever stand up, Wofford? Yep, that was a captain, Gavin. Yeah, 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 Gavin Monasim. What about the best player you played against? Oh, mate, against in regards to being a. Being a striker, and I would say playing against defender-wise, I would say Sol Campbell and uh, Sylvan Distan. I remember playing them. They were at Portsmouth. I mean, I played Distan, against Sol Campbell. Distan yeah. seems like an absolute monster. Them, two, I'll tell you, Will. Them two, you, it was. They were just absolute bricks. They were absolute beasts. I mean, they would do. They would do things off the ball that. Alan Shearer, we played against Newcastle in the cup. David Ginola when he was at Tottenham. Like real silky players, you know, just class, class, world class players. And let me uh, do what was the other question I was going to ask? It wasn't best, it was a um, your hat trick. Did you you scored a hat trick? Was it your first hat trick against Celtic? Yeah. That's it. T- talk me through that. What was it like to score your first ever hat trick? Oh, mate. That was just brilliant. It was just a uh, funny so I've actually just put it I've actually just put it up today on my throwback Thursdays on my Instagram page. <laughs> funny oh. enough. Lloyd's uh, Instagram. What's your Instagram page for people listening Lord, if they want to want to follow? Yeah, Lloyd Wusu Official. Lloyd Wusu Official. Jump on uh, official, jump on Instagram, have a look. Yeah. So all right, so that was so all right, that's 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 Quinson. So that was your first hat trick. What age were you? Uh twenty one. Twenty yeah, twenty one. And tell, what about what was the feeling like after you got the third and obviously knew you were going to get the match ball? Yeah, it was just brilliant because obviously, obviously I knew. I mean, playing for Slatan, I scored the four goals. You know, it was, it was a great thing. But being professional, yeah, first in your first ever season, and I remember the last goal when I put it, I spun it and put it in the top bin. It was just, it was just ecstatic, man. I remember I had all my friends and family in the stand as well, and I just knew, wow, I've scored a hat trick. And I ended up scoring hat trick again against them as well. I scored, actually scored two hat-tricks in that season against them, uh, one home and one away, and then I scored a hat-trick against Rotherham away as well. So three hat-tricks in one season, it was just like Royal of Rover stuff. You know what I mean? Non-league boy, coming from non-league to be pro to score three hat-tricks and score 25 goals in one season, just just, just Royal of Rover stuff. 
Favourite manager? Steve Coppel. For all the reasons we covered. Yeah. Um, funniest player that you've played with? Oh, mate. This, this I'm, sure, a... I'm, sure, I'm sure a few of them have banter level over, oh. like, just off the charts. Yeah, there's some. I mean, even like Andy Woodman, who was the uh, goalkeeper at Brentford when he came from Northampton. He's uh, he's actually he's Arsenal uh, Arsenal's un, Arsenal's uh, goalkeeper coach now. He was just an absolute character. Uh, there was a guy called Tony Foden. He was he, he was another character. Uh, just some, he just had some real great. Ija Anderson. He just some some I mean so many so many names at the top of my tongue. I mean we just had real great. The great thing about my career that I felt I had will with with players at every club I went to. There was always, like you say, the banter was there, but there was always good boys. There's not, I can honestly say, out of my 15, 16 year career at all the clubs I was at, I could probably, I probably can't even say that there was so-called idiots at a club. Everyone I went to, the, really? the yeah, honestly, honestly, because I, like, I still even keep in touch with the majority of them now. It's just, yeah, the banter was the banter, and uh, Glenn Little, he was a Glenn Little when I was at Reading, he was just a real comedian. You know, uh, so we had some great. I've had some great players, and and like I said, they're not even the great players. They've been they're great friends now. You know, still to this day. This is a weird question. Well, it's not weird. What's your favorite pair of boots? My favorite pair of boots were probably there was a, I had a Val Sports. Oh, decent mate. They were the green with a green stripe on the side, man. They were they were, oh, they were they were beautiful. But then I must admit, later on in my career. It was the 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 Nike Nike Total Nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. sport. Oh. Any rituals? Any superstitions? Yeah. So, so yeah. Is, it, is it vomiting? The vomiting, obviously. But prior to the vomiting, when I was uh, uh, at Brentford, I used to. Uh, so it was so weird because before a game, so I like I said, I had many great friends in op- op- opposing teams. Yeah, but when we when we would come in a tunnel, I wouldn't I wouldn't talk to them. They would all be trying, like, you know, you go two teams side by side, people mm. trying to shake hands. Even my best mate, Kevin Betsy or Jason Roberts, playing against him, they would try and shake my hand. I just would just ignore him. Just just wouldn't, just wouldn't, I would ignore him. And I'd be up against the wall in a change room before, bouncing my back. I would, I would, I would be pushing my, my back against the wall, saying, pace, power, strength, pace, power, strength, just knocking down a wall. And all the boys would think, what the hell is Lloyd doing? Don't Luca say that. Yeah, it was just—it was just like a, this is what I did. And like I said, in a tunnel, just didn't even talk to none of my mates. They—they they would try and shake my hand, wouldn't even acknowledge them. But then after the game, yeah, we have a big, we have a nice little drink and a cuddle. Uh, but yeah, man, that was one of, them. and obviously then the ritual of uh, being sick now just before games. I would just automatically just be sick now before a game, just get up, get it all up. One piece of advice to young players get trying to get into professional football now wanting to be a professional footballer through your career spanning the different teams have been across different countries the ups and downs what advice would you give them i'll give quite a few to be fair will i would always say danny bailey used to always say to me if you listen you learn to your elders you know what i mean if you listen you learn and i and I, i say that now to all the kids i work with if you listen you learn because they've been there they've seen it they know what it's all about so for me now i've been there i've done it i've seen it so I can give these youngsters what I've been there, seen it, and give them that guidance, what I've, what I've been through. Extra hard work. It's not about just turn up to training and, and training and, and, and thinking, yeah, I've done my training, go home. 
It's about doing that extra. It's about wanting to be the best player that you can be. Find a wall, just get a ball. All these kids talk about going to all this private coaching, blah, blah, blah. You don't need all that stuff all the time. Just get, just get, a, just get a football. Get a wall. Just work your touch. Bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. Work your weaker foot. You know what I mean? But one and another thing I would definitely say to kids, and I say to kids now, for me, if I wish I'd known more back in my day, stretch. Just stretch. Yoga, Pilates. It might be, it might look look like a funny sort of sport or or a relaxation. But if I'd known what I know now, I'd tell the kids now, stretch just to just to, to prolong your career, just to prevent that extra that little niggle that might come around the corner if if you hadn't if your if your muscles weren't so supple. Just, just do that for me. That's the kind of that's probably the three, three main things I would say to kids nowadays when if they really want to try and become a professional. Because like you say, look, not every kid's going to be a professional. It's, it's, it's don't get me wrong. There's a bit of luck along the way, but you can do, you can, you can have, you can add certain ingredients to make the recipe nearly come to the forefront. You know, Lloydie, it's been a pleasure. Uh, been we've been chatting here for an, over nearly over an hour. We could probably continue on going we're gonna get you on the podcast again yeah. want to get your insights into the into the premier league what's happening in england and what's happening here in australia but i've loved having a chat with you for yeah. all of you who's listened there uh lloyd wusu official again on instagram lloyd have you got a twitter account yeah my twitter account is just my name lloyd wusu lloyd wusu jump yeah. on have a look all of the content how else can people get in touch or uh, see what you're Lloyd Abusu football. I've got Lloyd Abusu football as well on Instagram. Right. Another place. Yeah. Majority of all, like a lot of my football and actual football stuff. Lloyd Abusu okay, football. Okay, so people listening, jump on and have a listen, have a watch. Uh, Lloyd, he's heavily involved in football in Australia here. He's played for a few clubs and coaches at a few clubs. So, you know, anybody interested or want to know more about football, reach out to him or no, anything want to touch on the stories we've just touched on here, reach out to Lloydie. But Lloydie, loved having you on. Uh, we'll definitely do it again, mate, and let's catch up soon. Definitely. Thank you, Will. Have a great one, pal. Thanks, mate.